We are in Psalms 141. I will be unpacking all ten verses tonight. Psalms 141 is an individual lament, a lament referring to grief or, or sorrow. It was a psalm that was often associated with evening sacrifices that took place at the temple. They would be prayers offered to God in times, in times of distress, where the individual or the community would plead for God to deliver them. And like many other lament psalms, it has a certain structure, and you'll notice this. But it has in the beginning an introductory cry, an invocation to God. Then the lament or the description, followed by a confession of trust, and then closing with an imprecation. In Psalms 141, there is an overarching theme from beginning to end. And it is compromise. You say, what's the sermon about in one word? Compromise. More specifically, Psalms 141 is a prayer to God to protect the faithful person against compromise. Let us unpack the text now. Verse 1, Psalms 141. O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. There's a little bit of urgency there in case you couldn't hear it in my tone. There is a a sense of urgency in verse 1. A boldness that is being expressed with the imperative, hasten to me! Evidently, it's, it's fine to urge God to hurry up. Verse 2. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Now, if it seems for a moment that verse 2 is somehow undoing the stress put on verse 1, let me just be clear here. Where in verse 1, it almost picks the psalmist, almost depicts the psalmist as this, this child like demanding the attention from a father right here, right now. Hey, hey! And then in verse 2, it seems like that stress and emphasis is completely done away with. And this imagery is now turned to one standing perhaps before the king, pressing for action, and yet also recognizing the king's position of authority. It seems that the psalmist, as urgent as the situation is in verse 1, doesn't necessarily expect Yahweh to respond instantly. 
And there is some imagery here for us to see. I want you to really see this in verse 2. He says, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. I'm going to work backwards through verse 2. This reference to the evening sacrifice. There could be ah, two possibilities. Evening sacrifice, evening offering, it may say in some of your translations. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. But this would be, in the narrow sense, when he refers to this evening sacrifice, in the, in the narrow sense, to, to a grain offering. Grain being taken to the temple. And yet in the broader sense, the evening sacrifice, so narrow sense, it is grain. But in the broad sense, it could refer to an animal sacrifice that was made each evening. Two possibilities, grain in the narrow sense, the animal sacrifice in, in the wider context. So he says, now let my prayer be counted as incense before you. And incense then might also refer to, one, actual smoke coming from the sacrifice itself that goes up to Yahweh with this pleasing aroma of some barbecue. Some some nice char charcoal. I mean, I don't care what's on the grill. Anything with charcoal. Just this nice, pleasing aroma. It's kind of the picture that, that we see here potentially. That when he says in verse 2, let my prayer become as incense before you, the pleasing aroma of the sacrifice itself. But if the sacrifice or the offering has the narrower meaning, it is the grain, then incense could be literally incense or spices that would have accompanied the grain offering itself. Now what is perhaps somewhat uh, giving a false impression is the reference to let my prayer be counted as. You read that and you think, well, let my prayer be counted as. And it's really easy to see that as prayer is going to be substituted as the incense. And there is no word for with so often in our English text. It's supplied with the word as. But the as, as I already stated, may give this false impression because prayers would go with. They would accompany the offerings. They would not be of substitute for the offering. Like, I'll pray so I don't need to carry out the other act of worship. I'll just do this, and this is good enough for checking the box for the rest of the day. I'll pray. All right, now I don't need to read my Bible for the week, or I don't need to, you know, be a part of the things of God or with the people of God. That's that's not what he's saying. Prayer is not... A substitute prayer would never be a substitute for offerings unless, for some reasons, offerings were impossible to happen in a given moment. I love this. You know, life gets kind of crazy sometimes. I'm proud of some of you who I know who have crazy weeks uh, ahead of you and you're here tonight. I am. So even, even though life is crazy, it's crazy for the psalmist. So how do you know? We read verse 1. You're like yelling it. Is there some intensity that's happening? There's a situation. He really needs Yahweh to respond. He needs the Lord to hear him. There's some type of crisis that's happening. Even though life is crazy, notice what the psalmist does. He still makes time 
to pray and worship God. And I'll tell you this, I love this. If and I'm stealing this, you guys know, from Piper, if you've come to Tuesday Night Small Group, but tell you what, if prayer or worshiping God ever seems like a distraction from productivity, because sometimes it does, right? Hey, I can't come to church tonight, or a small group tonight, and I got it, sometimes there may be like just something really, really, that just happens, I got that. But if prayer or worship ever seems like a a distraction from productivity, remember that God can do far more in five minutes prayer than you can in five hours. Thank you for the one person who believes that too. Um, He's having a lot of crazy going on. We're going to see this in a second. The craziness is going to be explained. Somebody's like, I've got a crazy week. Okay, um, I don't think any of your lives are in jeopardy right now. For the psalmist, his life is in jeopardy. He still has time to go to offer his prayers to Yahweh. Not only that, but to worship. The act of offering a sacrifice is worship. He's got time to do that. He makes time to do that. Man, I'll tell you, that's, that's the oldest trick in the book. And I I used to think the same. I I still struggle. Satan comes, he attacks you, and and tries to get you to think that somehow coming to church, coming to small group, spending time praying, spending time worshiping God is going to be somehow prevent you from doing all these other things which are also important or more important. That it's going to keep you from that. That it's going to be a distraction from productivity. Like, distraction from What? I'll say the Martin Luther quote. You guys have heard it many times. I love Luther and this mindset because I really think he gets what the psalmist gets there. He would say, I try to pray one to two hours a day, and then days when I'm really, really busy, I pray three hours. Oh, may we be like the psalmist. His life is very much chaotic. And he still comes. And he verse twos it up. Super encouraging, super convicting. If you're feeling that, it's okay. I'm feeling that too, even as I speak this right now. Let's keep seeing how the story unfolds. Verse three. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil. To busy myself with the wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity or sin. Let me not eat of their delicacies. Perhaps you've had moments where you've said something that you didn't mean. You were not really thinking and processing and then something slipped out. Maybe there was a girl you're trying to impress. Sometimes I feel like these stories always involve a girl that you're trying to impress. And, uh, you know, you're there, they're moving into the dorm, they're moving out of the dorm, you're carrying things, and I don't know why, it just so happens, you know, she's there with her mom, and, and you say, she says, hey, where's the yellow box? And you say, yeah, I think your grandma has it. Not starting things off right. And, uh, excuse me, her grandma? Whew, don't want to learn that lesson again. 
We all have moments where something slips out. Some type of hasty or hurtful comment just in the moment just, just happens, okay? We're not thinking. That's not what he's talking about here whatsoever. When he says, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth, keep watch over the door of my lips, what he is referring to is not some type of accidental thing you just blurt out without thinking. It's much deeper than that, much more egregious than that. It is a level of deceptiveness, of plotting, of premeditation that's involved. This isn't just a, I slam my, my foot or I, I hurt my hand and I, I yell out a bad word type of thing that he's saying, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth, keep watch over the door of my lips. It's much deeper. It's much more evil than that. And so the psalmist is praying here that God might protect him from such attacks, that he might protect him from the influence of other people. There is pressure from within, and there is pressure from without to join in with these other people in in the context here, for the psalmist to join in with them in the way that they use speech to further their scheming. And he's saying, God, please protect me. Please protect me. Please protect me. There's a struggle that the psalmist has, and it's real, to compromise, to join in with them. Summer break is about to happen. Sometimes I don't know why they call it summer break, because for many of you, it's not a break at all. For many of you, going home is not a safe place. For many of you, going home is an abusive place. They should call it summer battle, not summer break. And there will be the temptation to compromise. Every single one of you, myself included, will be tempted to compromise in speech, in action or conduct, to do things that I ought not to do, to say things that I ought not to say, or perhaps the inverse, to not say anything when I should speak up, to not act when I ought to act. There will be a constant temptation that at least one of us may experience. Pressures internally being torn. You want to do God's way. You want to do God's way, but there's the part of you that just is pulling you in the other direction. Much like the psalmist. When I taught high school Bible at LCA, I would tell my students, people are going to influence you for better or for worse. There's no such thing as Switzerland, right? The, the girl saying about her boyfriend, oh, well, it's more like Switzerland. It really is neither good or bad. Nope, might as well just be bad. They'll, they'll either encourage you and push you to, towards being like Christ, or they'll pull you away. Compromise will be something 
At least the temptation to compromise will be something that I'm sure every one of you may at one point over the summer encounter. Perhaps you already encountered it this week. People pressuring you to do things, to say things that just are not right, that are not honoring to our great God and King. The psalmist is experiencing this. The psalmist recognizes that he needs Yahweh to do something. He needs Lord God of heaven to turn him, to turn us into people who want to use our speech for the furtherance of truth and faithfulness, not of our own interests. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil. To busy myself with with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity. And let me not eat of their delicacies. Let me pause for a moment and remind you that you have a very big God. And this God, this God is very much involved in your lives. People say, well, I know that, but to what extent is he involved in my life? And I would say, every extent. There's a well-known book. I don't remember who the author is. I heard Piper referencing it one time, and the title just stuck in my brain. It's 50 years old. It's called, Your God is Too Small. God is... Involved in our lives. More so than I think many people within the American church even realize. And he is also involved in our moral life. You say, I don't know about that, Joe. In our moral lives? Because for most of us, perhaps we see God as standing back here and he says, I respect you too much, Joe, to get involved. You're going to have to make the right choice or the wrong choice and I'm just going to stand off to the side here and see what happens, okay? Can't help you. This is up to you because I just respect you way too much to involve myself. Unfortunately, I don't see that when I read the Bible at all. I see God being very involved, including when it comes to moral decisions. You say, how do you see that, Joe? And I said, need I look any farther than verses 3 and 4? Verse 4, don't let my heart incline to any evil. I don't want to do that. Don't let me, God, to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work in equity and let me not eat of their delicacies. Don't let me do that. There is... A talk that some of you probably have heard. You've heard of God at times hardening people's hearts. Say, can he do that? Yep, he can. How? Because he's God. This is the converse. You have to think, if he can harden someone's heart, then surely he can move your heart in such a way where it is now not inclined to those evil temptations. Say, is God involved? Does he care about these these things, minute things? Why would he bother himself? Does he really care that much? How involved is he? As I said earlier, he's really involved. Or have you not heard it said? 
Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. My prayer is that your God will not be too small, that you will come to love and embrace a complete and total sovereign God above all things. And so Yahweh may act like a friend who can persuade us to act in a way that we would not otherwise do. Or what would be the point of the psalmist praying that? Yahweh may act like a friend and persuade us to act in a way that we would not otherwise do. And I am thankful for that because I've prayed this prayer before. And he's protected me. And then he says, don't let my heart, I'm looking at verse 4, don't let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work inequity, and let not me eat of their delicacies. I don't want to do that. I don't want to, I don't want to be there when they're having their festivities, they're having their parties, and they're eating and drinking to their delight, some of which very well may be ill-gotten. I don't want to be there. I don't want to be with them. I don't want to be around them. I say there are some applications there for us, but you're probably already thinking of them. And so the psalmist, he's making a commitment right now. He's got a plan right now. Some of you, you don't have any plan, and you know what I'm saying is true. You know in the next weeks, in the next months, you're going to be faced with temptations to compromise, and you have no battle plan whatsoever. Because you're still thinking it's summer break. When it's not, it's summer battle. That's, that's what it is. And so the psalmist, and we would be so wise to learn from example, he makes a commitment, I'm not going to be there with them, around them, at their parties, at their festivities, when they're consuming these delicacies. I'm making a commitment, I'm going to decline this type of enjoyment. And there's another commitment he makes, and we see it in verse 5. He says, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness to get, to get hit. This is kind. Hmm, that's strange language. Let him rebuke me. It's oil for my head. Oil for my head? Being rebuked? That's sometimes uncomfortable and awkward. Let my head not refuse it. And so in one sentence, he makes a commitment to decline hanging out at these parties, eating delicacies, enjoying perhaps the ill-gotten gains of the ungodly, of the faithless, and simultaneously in verse 5, he makes a commitment to accept tough treatment from the faithful people of God. Or have you not heard that it was said, better are wounds from a friend than kisses from an enemy? He makes a commitment right here, right now, not to be there or with these people in these perhaps very tempting and compromising situations and at the same time accepting this tough treatment. And he says that though it may be somewhat discomforting to be on the receiving end of wisdom, ultimately it is beneficial. Have you not heard that it was said, 
For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's Hebrews 12.11. That's a, that's a, a lustry living verse if I've ever heard it. Discomfort, pain, annoyance. When I'm getting phone calls and guys are checking on me to see how I'm doing with purity, how I'm doing this week, if I've been in the Word... And if you don't have a plan, guys, going into this summer, then you ought to. The psalmist, not only he's got this plan, he's made a commitment. He's made a commitment. Though it's not always something that is comfortable, it is always something that is beneficial. And then at the end of verse 5, we see a little example of an imprecation. Imprecation. Of an imprecatory prayer. He says this, Yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. Remember, these wouldn't have been verses, so I'm just picking out the imprecation part. It ends in verse 5, continues to verse 6. Yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. When their judges are thrown over the cliff, then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. Think about the imagery of that. Their leaders, their judges are being thrown. It is thrown. They're being thrown to their deaths over a cliff. I uh, I could spend an entire night talking about imprecatory prayers. The the Psalms class that I had in graduate school and seminary was the only class in all of seminary that I had an exclusive this book study, and uh, I'm very thankful for it. We spent an entire lecture week just on imprecations, on imprecatory prayers. Say, can you pray this? The answer is yes. That's my short answer. Yes, you can pray. Then there is a lot of other criteria for the sake of time. I'm not going to get into that, but the psalmist is absolutely justified in saying these things right now using this graphic imagery. And he says, he says that perhaps when their judges, when their leaders are thrown over this cliff, Perhaps some of them may actually come to learn that what I was saying the whole time was actually true. That they were, they were believing these lies this whole time. That some of them may come to know the truth. And then he says this in, in verse 7. As when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. Once again, this word Sheol very interesting. We spent an entire lecture week in grad school just unpacking this. The King James Version translates it hell, the NIV, grave. The English Standard Version maintains the Hebrew word, and it just translates Sheol. You say, well, can you give me a, like a one sentence what this means? Like the real drive-through version, I say absolutely. Dr. Yates, he's spoken here before, professor of Old Testament studies at the Liberty University School of Divinity, says it like this. Sheol is a place in which both the righteous and the wicked go. Both the righteous and the wicked go to Sheol. The difference is, is that the wicked go before their time. That's the difference. And we can maybe talk about that more, at least at Tuesday night small group. So here the psalmist in verse 7 and, and I'll be honest, verse 7 has the, the, the greatest interpretive challenge to this entire text. 
And I am really giving you a very condensed version of it. But, but essentially this is what is happening. The psalmist views his situation as very bleak. Very bleak. It's only a matter of time before death overtakes him. And he relays to us the imagery of a farmer preparing the ground for agricultural purposes. And then in the next line, he completes the thought of why he was doing that. He's plowing, he's breaking up the ground, it's for the purpose of scattering seed. And yet seed, in this case, is replaced with a a chilling picture. A chilling picture of instead of seed being scattered, it's our bones. As when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. Not only in verse 7, there is something that I think is important for us to see. He makes this plural reference, as when one breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered. Verse 7 indicates that the psalmist who has spoken as this lone individual elsewhere in the psalm is now actually a member of a community who's under pressure. It's not just the psalmist. He's also apparently speaking on behalf of other people, and he's worried. That they're going to die. He's worried they're going to die. I'll take you back. Remember to verse 2? Verse 1, verse 2, there's this urgency like a, a child saying, Hey, Dad, pay attention. Dad, I need your help. Dad. And then he composes himself, right? It's going to be a busy, stressful week. Lots of finals. People are going to kill him. And he takes time to pray, to worship Yahweh. Because it's not a distraction from productivity whatsoever. And this this reference to our bones will be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. This is really fun if you if you like ancient Near East history. This this metaphor of, of of being swallowed up by death is one that most likely the psalmist is borrowing from the pagan region around them. He's he's using a cultural nuance to to make a point. See, within Canaanite mythology, Mot that's M O T was the god of death and the underworld. And he was depicted as having these monstrous jaws. Described as swallowing his victim's whole. His mouth was described as stretching from the earth, like his bottom lip on the earth, to the, to the heavens where his top lip would rest and his tongue reaching to the stars. Most commentators believe that the psalmist here is taking a very cultural nuance which would have been very familiar with his entire audience of the day to, to paint this graphic picture, this concern that he has, that he's, he and his community are about to die. And that not only are his enemies just content with killing him, they want to mutilate his body. That's why it's this reference, instead of scattering seeds, it's his bones. They don't just want to kill him. They want to mutilate him. Killing the psalmist is not enough for them. These people are wicked and evil and bad. And so this faithful community, they're under pressure. He sees them as their mouth, excuse me, their bones are scattered at the mouth of Sheol. And he recognizes a need to be protected from people who might do him harm people that he feels will do him harm. And so he says in verse 8, 9, and 10, But my eyes are towards you, 
O God, my Lord, in, in you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. Keep me from the trap they have laid for me. They've laid a trap. And from the snares of the evildoers. And then he turns us around. Here's another example of an imprecatory prayer in verse 10. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. They're trying to kill me, God. Talk about a bad week. They got a bad week. They're trying to kill me. There are traps that have been laid for me. Let me pass through safely. Let those same wicked people, let those traps kill them. Perfectly just for saying these things too. It says the psalmist prays that his enemies will be caught in these very same traps that they have laid out for him. And so the psalmist in this, in the beginning in verses 1 to 2, he, he pleads with God, give me your ear, hasten to me, verse 2, still praying, still worshiping, not neglecting the things of God, not seeing it as a distraction from productivity. And then he prays that God will, will turn his heart away from the temptation. That he, that he won't desire those things because perhaps he does desire them right now. I imagine he, he does, otherwise he wouldn't be saying it. And the fact is, is that when it comes to compromise, people often compromise in order to accommodate their own desires. I see that hand back there. People often compromise in order to accommodate their own desires. See, I repeat things for points of emphasis. That's why I said it twice. And they do. When you really desire something, I'm like, eh, maybe. Is he a Christian? Well, no, but he has a really good heart. And his eyes are... People often compromise in order to accommodate their own desires. It's not really porn, sort of-ish. Well, when you say drunk, what exactly do you mean by that? Or when you say I got high, what ex... Because I'm, I'm, you know, where's that... People often compromise in order to accommodate their own desires. So what do you do? You fight. How? Like the psalmist. Look at verse 4. Don't let my heart incline to any evil. Do you fight like that? Do you pray like that? God, don't let my heart incline to do these things because there's a part of me that wants to. Don't let that be my inclination. And some of you think, all right, okay, I'll, I'll do that. I'll pray that. All right, I'm going to pray Psalms 141, verse 4. And then, all right, time to go to the party that I know that will be serious temptations to compromise. If I go hang out with these people, or if I go to this place, or if I do this, I know that if I do these things, yeah. This is like, this would be like the guy who says, God, please, please just protect me. I, I don't want to have sex with my girlfriend tonight. Amen. And then, I mean, I get you know, the knock on my door a week later. Hey, Pastor Joe, yeah, what, we had sex. Really, what happened? Well, I have no idea how it happened. We were alone for the weekend at my parents' house. They were out of town, and just, I don't know, just happened. Like, you don't know how it happened. You were both alone, hanging out at your parents' house for two or three days, and you don't know how that happened. Okay, um, look at what verse 4 is. He prays, God, don't let me compromise. Right? Don't incline my 
my heart to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work in equity and let me not eat of their delicacies. And he has this plan. The plan is, I'm not even going to go to those parties. I'm not going to go to those festivities where they're consuming these ill-gotten gains. Not only does he pray, don't incline my heart to evil, he doesn't put himself in situations that he may compromise. If if you don't see it, look at verse 4. Verse 4 is the jam of this entire chapter. I mean, it is, it is it. He prays, and then he has this plan, and he has this commitment. He's not going to do those things. He's going to exercise enough wisdom not to put himself in compromising situations in which, in which he will inevitably compromise. You want to fight compromise? You want to fight compromise? Here's one more tip. You need to see Jesus as more desirable than the things that are tempting you away from him. Okay, this is classic Christian hedonism and John Piper rolled into it, but it is so true. You want to fight against compromise? Then... You can't just cut this out. Okay, I'm going to stand strong. You've got to replace something. You've got to replace that desire with what? With the desire in which you see Jesus as more enjoyable and better than you do that sin. And when it comes to sin, when it comes to sin, sin is more than just Breaking the rules. It's picking teams. Sin is more than just breaking rules. It's picking teams. There's a picture. Got Team Satan over here, Team Jesus over here. Sin is more than just breaking rules, it's picking teams. Oh, my prayer is that you would see Jesus as more valuable and more beautiful than anything else. That you would fight. You would fight. If you don't have a plan, you don't stand a chance. That you would have a plan, not just for the summer, but for every day of your life. You say, that's kind of awkward and comfortable. It's kind of annoying at times. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Yep, you're right. But at the end of the day, it's beneficial. And so as the band comes, I want to pray for us right now. Holy Father, we love you. Protect us. Protect us from temptation. Protect us from compromising from giving into things that dishonor you, from going along with the populace who says, it's okay, it's not a big deal. Don't get yourself so worked up, God. Oh, protect us against the temptations and the, and the compromises that we might face, against even the, the very back and forth fighting that we have with ourselves. So I pray, Psalms 141 verse 4, for all of us right now, that you would not incline our hearts to any evil and that you would give us the courage 
to commit to doing the right thing so that we don't even put ourselves in unnecessary compromising situations, God. Oh, we need your help. And so I pray as the early church father, St. Augustine, prayed so long ago, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Enable us to do the things that we ought to do. Enable us to be what right looks like. We love you, Jesus. Help us now. Amen.